are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I'm in the beautiful UT Gardens talking with my guest today. Becky Trout-Frixell is joining me. Becky, thanks for being on the show. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me, Shane. Tell us about your background and what you do. So I'm a medical veterinary entomologist here at the University of Tennessee, and that's a lot of words. But what it basically means is I study mosquitoes, ticks and flies and the different pathogens that they may transmit to humans and non-human animals. OK, uh, so how did you get into that? That's that's uh, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Not, not only are those really interesting insects, but they're really uh, when when you bring um, disease and pathogens into the equation, it's a it's a very salient, interesting uh, topic and something that we all have to think about when we're at hikes or hanging out outside. Yeah. So I, I I will be honest and say that when I was little, I was not passionate about insects like most entomologists are. Um, I didn't even know what an entomologist was, um, but I was an undergraduate student and living in Kentucky at the time when there were a bunch of horses that were dying and we couldn't figure out what was happening and they were always showing up on the news. And it just happened to be that A little caterpillar had a bacteria on the hair of it, and horses were consuming this caterpillar, and that caused basically an enhanced immune response, and a bunch of horses died because they were consuming caterpillars. And I just thought that was super wicked cool, and that was was it. Shortly after that, West Nile virus started, and I was was in. Fascinating. It is, uh, people that study viruses are always in such awe of viruses i i feel i feel like people people that are familiar with them are are always just so fascinated with the workings of them most people hear about pathogens or something and and they get very very skittish uh about it uh people that study pathogens it's it's they they seem to marvel at their interactions. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you um, on that. And for me, it's that um, that interaction between the pathogen and that arthropod, the mosquito, the tick, the fly, that you know, basically where, where co-evolution have come together and allowed for a pathogen to be transmitted. So, you know, there's some really um, I'm just going to say interesting studies because I want to use adjectives like awesome and fascinating. Uh, But some really interesting studies that show, you know, people infected with malaria are actually more attractive to mosquitoes that don't have the malaria pathogen. Whereas people who, right, you see this, right, where people who don't have malaria are more attractive to mosquitoes with malaria. So this idea of mosquitoes, ticks, flies, um, you know, they are you know, just, quote, just a vector, but they are the vehicle moving these different things around. And so that's what I like to study. So I already have a question. So, so, so really cool that mosquitoes without malaria are attracted to people with malaria. I've never heard either of those parts, but that, that one makes a lot more sense to me than the mechanism of mosquitoes with malaria attracted more attracted to so i'm sure they'll they'll also Mm -hmm. be attracted to whatever's around 
but more attracted to people um, without malaria. Why would that one take place? Because because you would think that so th- that what what would the advantage for malaria be if it's if it's inserted to in into someone that already has malaria? Is it the like existing malaria would c- out compete whatever new introduced malaria? So. Not necessarily a competition side of things, but the gametocytes that are going through the circulatory system of the the sick person, so basically the the immature stages of the malaria protozoan, um, are causing the sick individual to sweat, increase mouth breathing, and carbon dioxide coming out. And so all of those things together are really attractive to that mosquito that doesn't have it. And so, you know, all of these things come together and that you know, the, the mosquito wants to find a human to feed on, just like the malaria protozoan wants to be picked up and transmitted. So when someone has malaria, basically they're like, uh, one of the factors is their kind of heat signature from their breath is uh, easier for a mosquito likely, to yeah. to recognize. Yeah. Um, yeah, so those are some of the things I study here at, at UT. Um, not necessarily the, the behaviors like that, um, but looking at mosquito transmission of lacrosse virus and trying to figure out why mosquitoes, you know, here have something and over here don't. And so kind of more of those um, epi-human animal health studies. Yeah. Very cool. So first of all, you just informed me about and now the audience about uh, uh a new pathogen to worry about um, for a lot. Of, do do people when you tell people about the cross virus is that is that something most people would know about? I never heard of it before. Is it regional? Um, so the cross virus um, started in La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is why it was. That's first where I'm from identified. originally. So now you know the I've, name. <laughs> I know, but I'm from there, and I'd never heard of the La Crosse virus. Yeah, and it you know fortunately and I hate to use these type of numbers, um, only affects, you know, roughly 80 kids a year in small areas of the country. And, you know, most of them now happen to be in Southern Appalachia. And so it doesn't make national news. It doesn't make, you know, international news. And it rarely makes news here um, simply because it's an every year, you know, this is what's going to happen and we're used to it. Um, But at the same time, when I talk to the parents of the children who are um, sick with lacrosse, they've never heard of it before. And so it is a constant um, struggle trying to let people know about it and give them the um, the power to protect themselves and basically not let them be be afraid of it. Okay, well, I want to learn <laughs> I I want to learn everything about this virus from my hometown. Yeah, so um this this virus was first found in the 60s in La Crosse, um, Wisconsin. It is transmitted by the eastern tree hole mosquito, which is found um basically the across the entire eastern United States. So there's the eastern tree hole mosquito and you can guess where the mosquito lays its eggs. And water in, in the a, Mississippi? Nope, in a, it's an eastern tree hole mosquito. Oh. oh <laughs> Sorry. You're the middle schoolers you teach. I bet they get that one right a no, lot faster than no. I just did. No? no. Okay. People on the spot have a hard time. Sorry about that. Um, I love it. That's... <laughs> Entomologists okay. are very right. simple. All we right. don't want to complicate right. anything. Yeah, yeah, I love um, it. Because it's, it's usually some crazy Latin mis- word of a puzzle of a fancy sounding no. thing that 
Yes. Okay. It's yes. literally in the tree holes. So yeah, so these mosquitoes, eastern tree hole mosquitoes, lay their eggs in tree holes of like say oak trees or something where a branch has fallen off and it's created this little little hole where water collects. They lay their eggs in there and then they develop um, into adults. They fly out and they'll feed on some kind of squirrel or chipmunk in the area, some cute fuzzy little creature with insanely sharp claws and nails and things. Um, and they'll pick up the virus potentially from um, that reservoir, from that, that host, um, where they can then potentially transmit it to a, to a human nearby. So they don't fly very far. They're very close. Um, the neat thing about this virus, and I say this as an entomologist, I find this really neat. Right. Not not as someone who's yeah. had to talk to parents. Of, not as yeah, a mom. Right. Not yeah, as yeah. Any, anybody. We got you. This mosquito can transmit the virus um, vertically. So it can go from the female to all of her offspring. And so that means in this scenario, um, when those larvae developing in the tree hole come out, they can be actually transmitting the virus Whoa. as adults on the first bite. How many how many mosquitoes are you getting out of a uh, in a batch generally? Like thousands, right? So it totally varies, and it varies by competition and who's laying their eggs together, and that's other stuff we're looking at in the lab. But I'd say probably twenty to fifty mosquitoes coming out per uh, tree hole. I pictured thousands. But like, so you know, they're all. Um, are strategists, so these mosquitoes lay a bunch of eggs, okay. but not all of them are going to make it to adulthood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's one of the um, few good things, I will say. If all mosquitoes made it to an adulthood, we would be in trouble. More trouble. Yeah. We, we would yeah. not be able to see each other right now through all of the mosquitoes. Yeah, yeah, probably. So so there's this one mosquito, and it's kind of always just been in this um, this cycle for a long time. Um, since then, it's been found in other areas like here in eastern Tennessee, and we've actually found it in two other mosquito species as well. Um, the Asian tiger mosquito, the one that most people are very familiar with. It's got little black and white markings on it and a white stripe on its um, on its thorax or on its back. Um, that can also transmit it. And then another mosquito, the, um, the bush mosquito, which can transmit it as well. Um, so we have like three vectors, vertical transmission happening, but none of these mosquitoes fly really far. And so that's the reason yeah. why we're safe is they don't fly very far. So other, hmm, what question to start with? You just made 10 questions shoot through my mind. Okay. So I, I guess, first of all, Let's get people interested. What's this thing do if you, if you are a human and you get it? Let's start with that and then work our way back. So it, you know, it depends on who you are. And that's like this kind of the hard part about this. Um, if you are an immunocompromised individual or a kid under the age of 15, um, your immune system will get shocked. So a virus will get into your body. And it. what I've noticed from um, interacting with parents and reading the literature is that the younger the kid is, the child, the worse it can be. And so the virus gets into the nervous system. It causes brain swelling. Um, so encephalitis occurs. Um, there could be seizures. There could be, you know, no, typically it starts with a fever. Um, but if it's really bad and that virus replicates seizures, going to the hospital, spinal taps, all sorts of nasty things. Yeah, I mean, encephalitis, I mean, there's not there's not a whole lot of treatment for, uh, there, there's not a lot of stuff you can get crossing the blood-brain barrier, is my understanding, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it like, shouldn't. That's that's why there's a barrier. Right, These viruses right, should right. not be doing this. Um, so, yeah, it gets across and it causes that. And then what we're um, noticing is children who recover also have 
cognitive um, disorders that you know kind of happening with some of them. Um, it's not all of them, but it could happen. Um, there, we've seen individuals with ADHD. I've spoken with a parent who whose child was diagnosed around the age of 11, 12. Um, and then later on, when the child turned 16, super excited to get their driver's license and stuff. But the parent was like, there's no way, you know, he's going to be able to drive because he's still having cognitive um, problems. Um, so this is um, something that we're still learning about and still need to study, um, primarily because we need to stop it. And at the same time, um, educate people about how to prevent it. So when you say there's 80 cases a year. Yeah, 60 to 80 a year. How how are they diagnosing this? I, I mean, the the thought occurs to me like, is that just the confirmed cases? You you would you would think that there would be a good number of unconfirmed cases or misdiagnoses or something. This is something we talk about a lot in the lab. So we know about the cases that make it to the hospital um, with some kind of lacrosse neuroinvasive disease, so a neuroinvasive symptom. We don't know about people who didn't make it to the hospital, um, primarily probably because of health insurance or misdiagnosed with the flu at home, summertime illness type of thing. Um, But diagnosis for those individuals who have the the symptoms, um, goodness, it's it's spinal tap, it's testing for herpes, meningitis, and other um, things that could cause the encephalitis as well. Um, but the samples typically get sent to a state lab and often take anywhere from two to three weeks for, for confirmation to occur. Wow. And so a parent is sitting there in the hospital with their child who's, who's very sick. And that parent is very upset because they want an answer and they want a solution. And the doctors are equally frustrated because um, they want to help that kid. Right. Two to three weeks from the lab? It seems that way. Wow. <laughs> and, and, you know, one of the small things that we talk about is, you know, with Everything that happened with COVID, you know, can some of those diagnostic tests get flipped for lacrosse? Can we take some of those solutions that happened very quickly and use them for some of these other, you know, endemic neglected diseases? Right. All, all of uh, everything that we did, throw, uh, throwing the spaghetti against the wall at, uh, and all of all of the resources and mm-hmm. that. that yes. uh, some of the antivirals tr- that were identified and, and worked, you know, could they work for lacrosse and the other viruses as well? Right, right. Hmm. Including getting more rapid testing, hopefully. Yes. Um, so or, all right. So that's how that's that's what happens um when you get it is uh just an actual nightmare. Um there's uh, there's <laughs> yeah, I hate and, it. it's not funny and it's hard. <laughs> well <laughs> there's <laughs> <It's not> <laughs> I mean you you laugh to like uh, yeah. uh, because what else are you gonna do? You, you know no, it's, it's exactly like that. like the, the, the tension creates a, a need for some sort of uh a release valve. Um yeah, but but uh what about what about treating because back to the the trouble with the blood brain barrier you mentioned spinal tap because it's my understanding that medicine doesn't like very few medicines outside of um maybe like psychoactive things or something like that cross the the blood brain barrier yeah. so what what kind of treatment is available for yeah. honestly i'm i'm not familiar with many things um, except for treating symptoms so trying to bring fevers down, trying to calm the individual. Um, I've spoken with some parents where the child is put um, kind of like into an induced coma, um, things like that to wow. help the rest of the immune system really kind of pick up and work. Um, it's it's hard. And I 
it, it is one of those extremely frustrating things. And so just trying to rearrange how we think about it, how we think about this virus and how we approach it is what we're having to do now. Mm. Yeah. All right. So back to uh, back to uh, the mosquitoes and the, uh, the uh, vectors. For, so first, there's three species that are known to uh, to carry it. Yeah. Why? Uh, so do you have any idea how many uh, species of mosquitoes just like exist? Any, there may or may not be new ones kind of being discovered all the time. Right, right. right of course. And so we're going to go with around 5,200 is the number. Okay. That <laughs> it must be fun to like, I mean, who's discovering new mosquitoes? What a tedious job, <laughs> like to oh, see a mosquito. A and job though. Yeah. Oh, of course yeah. it's an important job, but yeah. to like have a mosquito land on you and be like that. Doesn't look familiar. Exactly that doesn't look is. like other mosquitoes that yeah. I've seen, and I've seen a lot of mosquitoes. And it's like, are there are there people like um like bird watchers that uh, that catalog that, that like yeah yeah the, some of the really really good ones. Um, and I don't want to just like say different laboratories, but you know the Walter Reed um, hospital, the institution there. They have some of the best um, taxonomists looking at new mosquito species and trying to figure out what's there. Um, there's taxonomists. There's actually like it's it, this is this is really funny. There's there's people who fight about the name of a mosquito yeah. and whether or not it should be one species or another species. And do we lump them together or different genera? Um, but really what it comes down to, in, in my opinion, is we need to be able to know what to call it based upon what it's doing. So it could be like a new biotype or a new species, but if we oh, don't, you don't get to just call it, if you like discover it, you don't get to, Oh, some people do. Some people. Oh, yeah. do. What would you yeah. No, You yeah. wouldn't call it after you. Oh no, no, no. People wouldn't be able to say it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose. Yeah. No, I, I would, I I, cause I that. would, I'd be, I'd be tempted to call something like a Shane Skeeto or something. Yeah. Beyonce, Gary Larson, the comic, um, the comic writer, I don't know if you know who I'm talking about. Um, he has a, a mini insects named after him. And so most of the time, um, when an insect. A person is, I've never heard of who. Gary Larson's pretty famous. Yeah. Well, like Farside comics and things. Oh, Farside comics. So he has many insects named after yes, him. Yes, Larsonii is a very common species name. Yeah. A lot of people will name it after their spouses. Um, or normally you name something in honor of somebody. So I had a. Um, a colleague I was working with who identified a new um, rediscovered would be the right way to put it. Um, rediscovered a species of fly that everybody thought was um, kind of like this one fly species. And he was like, no, this one is indeed different. And we confirmed that it was indeed different. And he wanted to name it after his um, his his master's advisor. But we couldn't do that. But so maybe another one will be there. I think I think if I like discovered just like the worst mosquito ever, like a really horrifying mosquito, is there ever like someone names a mosquito after their ex or something like that? Oh, I think that happens probably a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can imagine that happens naming? a lot. There has yeah. to be some spite naming. There's yeah, in the entomology drama world, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So the the reason I'm bringing this up. Not just because it's yeah. fun and entertaining. We got 5,200 mosquitoes, three of them mm -hmm. carrying this. Is that just because there's like mostly, are, are these just the three most abundant in the area that uh, that lacrosse is? Or, or is the lacrosse virus just not compatible with um, other, other species? I, I guess... 
I, I didn't know there was so much yeah. variance within within mosquito. Like if if you yeah. try to if you try to give the lacrosse virus to the other fifty two hundred mosquitoes, is it just not going to be able to? Carry? Yeah. Yeah. So this is where we get into the idea of transmission. So the other mosquitoes can very likely acquire it from that same host. So that infected squirrel um, with lacrosse, but they might not be able to transmit it. So that virus has to make its way. You know, from the mouth parts down into the gut, out of the gut. It's got to escape the gut, make it to the salivary glands and wait to be um, basically transmitted um, with the spit of the mosquito. And this is why viruses are so fascinating right. because you're like the journey that they have to take Ex to do this, to get to the thing. Exactly. To go, wow. so, is that's like the vector borne disease part, right? Like how in the world is this virus surviving the immune system of a mosquito, yeah. the immune system of the squirrel and the chipmunk and other things, and then the immune system of the human as well. Um, so, like, if we can figure that out, I you, mean, that would be. You wonderful. think they just like read a lot of self-help books or something Absolutely. and believe in themselves? Absolutely. They probably they just use manifest their little, it. Like, I don't know what virus parts are, but yeah. like, little parts of their viruses. To you just gotta believe in yourself if you're a virus. Maybe they use us to figure it out. When we <laughs> learn about things, they like take from it. Uh, yeah, they're they're tapping <laughs> into our knowledge yeah. system through be, some sort of yeah uh, quantum this and that that is yeah. yet to be understood. Yeah, you think about some of those pathogens that change human behavior. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe those individuals don't wear repellent anymore. <laughs> oh, that's, I know that's that's morbid. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no, don't be. I love a little. Uh, we've just had Halloween at the time of recording this, so it's it's fun to get a little morbid. Um, so first of all, how do you land on studying the lacrosse virus? So you you get into this area of of. Uh, of studying pathogens and um, and various inter interactions between, um, say, like insect vectors and human and and mammal interactions. Uh, what what makes you land on? Do they do they just you say this is what I want to do, and then they go, well, we need someone on this. We need another person on this. Here, you take lacrosse. Is it kind of a sad story? I love a good sad story. If you make me cry, you win. You win. I don't know what you win, but I'm going to be excited. Oh, and hopefully funding, right? A donor will donate to the program. Yeah. That's what we would win. Um, so when I moved to Tennessee, um, I knew about lacrosse, but I um, was one of those individuals who kind of neglected it as well. You know, it was in our textbooks. It was on our exams. Um, and it wasn't as important to me. Um, I was working on other things like malaria, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, um, avian malaria, things like that, that um, were more fascinating to me at the time. Um, but when I came here, um, you know, I start with my, my research program in 2012. And the summer of 2012, I get a phone call from the um, Tennessee Department of Health asking me. This is going to get so <laughs> sad, get sad, isn't it? Oh, you might win the prize, though. This, please donate. We need help. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, I get a phone call from the health department that a, a child passed away from lacrosse. Um, and the health department asked if I could go to the home and collect mosquitoes and do a thorough investigation because they were actually able to, and I use they, um, the, the family allowed for an autopsy to occur. Um, and so the brain of the child was sent to the Centers for Disease Control and it was confirmed to have lacrosse. Um, so roughly... 
you know, 60 days after the bite occurred, the initial infection, I went to the property and, you know, set up mosquito traps everywhere, like everywhere around the property, at other people's places. I was, I don't know, I was driving around with my in-laws trying to find places to set up traps because we really wanted to find this, this virus in the mosquitoes and we found it. Um, and so that basically meant that I sat down with the rest of my research program, the, the students in the lab and my technician, and said, we need to redirect a little bit of resources to this so that we can constantly be aware of it and be there um, so we can respond. You know, there could be a, a one child in the hospital and, you know, the rest of the family is at home with, with other siblings. And so we'll show up with things like um, Tennessee football gear and everybody loves a Tennessee football shirt here in Tennessee. And so throw it at them to put that on so they're wearing their clothing and doing what they can. And we do um, source reduction cleanup. So, you know, if there's water around the property, we teach them how to do all of this. And so um, really trying to make sure that a little bit of education, you know, for these individuals can go a really long way because ideally they're going to be our champions. They're going to be telling people out in the community, you know, that this virus is here and we need to be protecting the rest of the kids as well. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know like malaria happens, you go, you go like, well, let's drain all the pools around here and say, well, what, what do you, 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 you start, if we start seeing the crossfire, what are we going to drain the tree holes? How are, what do you, how? So I, I really smile at this because my student um, found one manuscript that showed that if they put sand in all of the tree holes, it reduced the mosquito population and stopped virus transmission. We gotta sand the tree holes? We just need to look for, now how do we get to the tree holes, right? <laughs> and so this is where the next line of research really needs to go into, is identifying these sites where vertical transmission is happening, where the, the mommy mosquito is giving it to the baby mosquitoes, and then stopping that line of transmission. I know. <laughs> well, it seems challenging. It, it, uh, I it mean, is, but I think it's going to be fun because I think this is a a solvable problem. I really do. Say you, like, I love climbing trees, mm -hmm. love it. So you just, what do you just put the word out there, like, hey, any tree climbers out there, when you're out and about doing your regular run of the mill daily tree climbing, as I do, mm -hmm. keep an eye out for tree holes, and if you see one, throw some sand in it. So that's that is one way that they could do it. That would be pretty hard. <laughs> It'd be pretty fun, too, I would think. I could think of some students who would love to do that. Oh, you'd get yeah. sued immediately. Yeah, Someone would fall yeah. out of you wouldn't. <laughs> be like, I was climbing that tree for, in the yeah. interest of public health, the University of Tennessee told me to climb that tree. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, so that's, that is one thing that somebody could do. Um, but the other thing that um, we really push for is source reduction. And so removing standing water around a property. Um, that could be water that's held right there in a tire, um, water that's held in a kid's toy or a tire swing, um, flower pots, all of those places where we've, you know, we as in like the greater we talk to people about, you know, if you want to get rid of mosquitoes that are biting you, you need to remove the place where they're growing up, where mosquitoes are laying their eggs. Um, so that's one um, thing that I think is a very doable um, solution. It takes time and it takes work to do that. Um, but I think if we're doing it for kids, I think it makes a ton of sense. Um, the other things that we can do is add, you know, let's say there's a spot where we can't get to, um, like a tree hole. Um, we can put insecticide up there and a larvicide and get that up there. And I think there's a lot of solutions that are available um, that just haven't been tested for lacrosse. Okay. 
and and because um, there's only so many resources and a million problems to solve exactly. in life mm-hmm. generally, but also within the world of infectious disease, and uh, and and so hopefully this is a this is an excellent time with all of the um, uh, innovations yeah, that have I happened think, over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think it will just take you know me and some. Um, some undergrads, grad students, some of the middle school and high school students I've, I've told you about um, working together. Eventually, those kids are going to become adults living in the area. They'll be aware. Um, and then partnerships at other institutions. I work really closely with Western Carolina University. Um, they have quite a few cases in that area. And so we kind of are trying to piggyback and you know piggyback work with one another um, so that we use our resources really effectively, I think. So started in the cross. This was discovered in the 60s? Yeah, so everybody was working on lacrosse for the longest time. Okay. That was the, when, when we talked Be, to the, Because people, when, when, a, when a new pathogen hits the market, people don't know if it's, it's, it's going to blow up and mm-hmm. every, everyone in the, in the world's going to get this yeah, new thing. Yeah, some of the best um, entomologists um, at the time were, were graduating out of um, Notre Dame. Um, and so, you know, Notre Dame had some and still does have some fantastic entomologists working on infectious diseases, um, mosquito-borne viruses and pathogens. Um, and so a lot of people in that area real close to La Crosse, Wisconsin, and that that spot were, were, were studying it and testing it. Um, it has since um, the cases have really kind of shifted, though, um, to southern Appalachia, where we don't have as many um, entomologists working in the area. How did it, uh, let's see, so 60 That's years. a million dollar question. Actually, probably two million dollar question. <laughs> and these are slow moving things. 60 years is a whole lot of mosquito generations. It's a whole lot of, gen- yes. Um, so there's some whispers wondering if it's always been here and it's just been missed. Oh, that's interesting. Right? So if you don't look for it, you don't know it's there or you don't have a big outbreak. You don't know it's there. Well, let me ask you what. Uh, so these, these. Uh, so you said squirrels. Yeah. Are, what? What else? Squirrels, what other? chipmunks, cute things that will run around at a park. Well, there's a lot of cute <laughs> things all over the. Small like, creatures, small mammals. I, no, I, well, that's what I mean. It, it, is if the the mosquitoes may not be going very far, mm-hmm. but what about the the squirrels and chipmunks and stuff? Could that be? They don't move uh, very far either. Uh, and so it's very likely people moving the mosquitoes or that they were already here. And so we know that um, the Asian tiger mosquito and the, the bush mosquito you know, are not from the United States. They're not native to here. Um, and they were accidentally introduced um, to the country and have just since taken over. This is good terrain for it. It didn't have uh was it was it just they, um so it was just people um importing um things like tires. Um so some of the mosquitoes had already been laid their eggs in the tires and tires came in from from Asia and then those tires just moved around, mosquitoes hatched and took over. Mm. The ecosystem here the was ecosystem such that it was imbalance. very favorable for mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is really favorable. I mean, you look around just where we are, it's it's beautiful in East Tennessee. We have hardwoods aplenty. We have a bunch of squirrels and chipmunks and a lot of places for these mosquitoes to develop. Um, and I'll even add the the terrain, the elevation, the geographic like features um, also kind of make this area pretty unique to, um, to places for water to just kind of get in these mosquitoes to develop. So 
maybe the lacrosse virus was spread much further than just lacrosse and and it wasn't until more information and awareness got out there that it became um, more readily diagnosed mm-hmm. in in areas and tracked down and I I, ima- right. okay. I imagine probably the circumference of the area of like doctors that are knowledgeable on the subject to diagnose it probably shifts with the it, it probably doesn't just every doctor in the country gets up to speed on the lacrosse virus it's probably on a kind of yeah need to know you're totally right so in the early 2000s there were a bunch of kids in east tennessee that became sick with a virus of unknown origin um doctors didn't know what was happening they presented to eastern um, east tennessee children's hospital and the cdc came and confirmed that it was lacrosse and so you know there is this combination of you know, knowledge, um, having doctors know, you know, what's available and what's out there. Um, and when I say what's out there, like, you know, what are the viruses that are currently circulating at the time? And so we wouldn't be thinking about lacrosse in the winter time, just like we wouldn't be thinking about, I don't know, insert other virus in the summertime. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I said frostbite. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, okay. Um, so it's been being studied since the sixties where, uh, we threw lots of, um, attention and time and resources, um, on it because who knows what's going to happen with any new pathogen. And so it was tracked and I imagine we have samples and stuff from that time. Has, has the virus itself been evolving much over the last 60 years? You know, that's the next, like, those are some really, that's a really good question because those are some studies that we want to look at. You know, look at virus evolution within the mosquitoes, see what's happening. Um, We do know there's different strains of lacrosse virus that have been identified. So strains, just like, you know, different stereotypes or genotypes, whatever we want to call it. Um, But we know that there's one that just seems to be a whole lot worse um, when it gets into kids, when it gets into people um, compared to other ones that are just um, just out in nature and haven't spilled over, I guess would be a way to think of it. So we all have a zillion different priorities in life. Some people here are like, well, only 80 kids, whatever, you know, obviously you'd never say that to the parents, but maybe if you're, if you're looking at statistics and figuring out and comparing it uh, against you know, COVID, the flu, heart disease, car accidents, whatever else you, you might, it might fall off, um, a a lot of people's radar. I was certainly unaware of it. What, but what kind of kinds of things has, uh, has researching, uh, the lacrosse virus, maybe just from your own work, but also through the decades, what, what sort of things can we learn and glean from, uh, you know, studying like using using the lacrosse virus as a case study yeah or like a model uh, system as a model system yeah. that that can be applied to other issues that we face yeah so understanding um lacrosse virus um we'll get down to oh goodness so i'm not really a virologist so i'm going to throw that out there um but understanding how different genotypes of viruses or different strains of viruses um survive in different mammals and vector species um when i think about it as an entomologist i like to look at it as you know what are these mosquitoes doing um in the immature stages when they're together in the tree hole or the cup in someone's backyard you know are they interacting with one another does that lead to competition or not um how are these mosquitoes surviving um i guess are those things that are really kind of more more really exciting to me yeah and then the other bit is i think 
it creates a little bit of community awareness in our area. And so for me, I've been using lacrosse virus as a way to teach students about entomology and the importance of becoming an entomologist so that, you know, if we're working with 80 kids who are getting sick with lacrosse, you know, we need we do need to recognize that 250,000 kids die of malaria every year. And so, you know, it's those numbers are extremely different. Um, but if you're helping these kids with lacrosse, we can also be transferring those studies over to kids who might have malaria. So what's you do a lot of public communication. You go, you visit uh, like middle schools you, you were just mentioning. Um, what's some of the other uh, research and work and public communication that you do? So I, I really feel, and I, I'm going to make assumptions, you might be feeling the same way, which is why you're here, that we do science so that it doesn't stay in a journal on a bookshelf. Yeah. Um, we do science to make a difference. And so um, I run a program called Megabytes, Medical Entomology, Geospatial Analyses. We basically teach teachers um, about entomology and how to do mosquito surveillance. And we work with their classrooms um, to help do this mosquito surveillance so that um, we have more data in East Tennessee. The students are doing engaged learning and they're not just sitting in a classroom. They're, they're going outside and interested in entomology and at least hearing about the word entomology. And so then we get their egg papers back and my students get to you know, include that stuff into their PhD dissertations or master's thesis um, to really figure out why here and not there. Um, as a part of that, we do bring in science communication. So we ask the students in the classroom, those middle school and high school students, to create a poster and to talk about, you know, what they did and what they learned so that, you know, they're not just doing, they're reflecting and then talking about it and sharing the message with others. And, you know, ideally they're going to talk to their family members or guardians um, about mosquitoes and lacrosse virus and get that word out. Um, and then, you know, some of the students will stay in East Tennessee, become adults and have families in the area. Um, and then they'll be aware as well. And so it's kind of this you know, with, with lacrosse virus, I really feel like it, you know, it could be a sprint, but it is a marathon trying to get that information out. Um, and so, yeah, that's some of the stuff we do with science communication. Um, we had we had one group of students actually do a podcast and submit it to the um, NPR podcast challenge. I don't I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, yeah, but these middle schoolers sat down and developed a little podcast and it was absolutely precious and they talked about mosquitoes and entomology and how they transmit pathogens put sound to it and, and spread it yeah it's pretty fun yeah and what what other um what other kind of um viruses and uh disease spread in insects do you study yeah so um so the mosquitoes is kind of like one arm um and then the other arm um is a lot of tick-borne pathogens in the area so um right now we're working with the asian longhorn tick that's um relatively new to the united states and transmitting a pathogen and and killing cattle and it's it's a completely different audience when you're working with cattle producers and stakeholders than it is when you're working with you know a parent of a sick child and you know you're just kind of Jumping from one form of communication to another arthropod system um, and trying to figure out what's happening there. Um, and then some other things, too, working with flies that, you know, transmit bacteria to, to cattle and, and other things, too. So how um, the can you talk a little bit about the One Health uh, initiative? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a I'm one of the One Health initiative fellows, I believe is what it's called, or scholar. Um 
and really what I do, I feel like is the best. Ex- okay. So I know everybody probably feels that they're, they're the best example when it comes to one health. Um, but what I do is, you know, something growing up in the environment is getting infected and bothering or transmitting a pathogen to a human or an animal, non-human animal. Um, those animals are moving things around and potentially affecting other things. Um, and we get all the way down into the, down into the weeds, to be honest, (laughs) you know, if we manage a pasture, we can control ticks. We manage the environment. So it's really, um, social, economic behaviors, um, what trees are in an area are affecting mosquitoes, what trees have fallen down and died from a, um, a fungal pathogen, you know, could create an area for a small mammal to grow and, you know, hold ticks and things. And so it's really, um, in my opinion, you know, one health at, at the most narrow spot. Yeah. Just very, very interdisciplinary. What, what about, what about some of the, um, more modern issues that, that come with, um, uh, biodiversity loss. And I, I would say probably, uh, more impactful habitat loss. That's kind of, uh, forcing a lot of these small, uh, yeah. critters into smaller and smaller yeah. spaces and viruses kind of loving things yeah, in confined spaces. Um, you know, probably one of the best examples has been Lyme disease where, um, you have a bunch of communities developing, um, into forested places where ticks were. Um, and now we're living there and those mice are running around, the deer are coming through and those ticks are, are feeding on those animals out in quote nature or our backyard. And then, transmitting that bacteria to us so is that kind of what you were asking yeah yeah yeah, yeah so that you know I, I think about my yard in east tennessee and um you know 10 years ago we probably had two deer kind of moving around a bit but now we have you know, a lot of deer on the on where we live now and there's discussion now about you know hunting and you know what what should we do to kind of help control this um the deer population because our tick population has just um followed suit would be a way to put it yeah. And is this, do you, do you see more potential for, um, uh, for disease spread generally as, as there's, as, as there's kind of more, um, as, as there's more transmission between mammals as, as different, uh, it's, things are. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that idea of like, as we get, um, closer. Yeah, right? kind of it's more. really easy for my mosquito or my tick to make it from one to another. Um, you know, we think about lice and children in a in an elementary school or a daycare. You know, if we bring them together inside, that lice, those louse are going to move back and forth. It seems like there's there's potentially some more um, evolutionary opportunities for certain viruses as well for some for some new variant of lacrosse things, or something yeah, to take off. And if, if some, if some new cute species shows up that, uh, that wasn't in the area before because it was crowded into the same space as everything else. And then it might be, a. a, a a new vector potential. Yeah, host. so competition could happen. Um, where you know, arthropod one was fine. Arthropod two moves in, um, and maybe now the behavior of arthropod one changes over time, 
It becomes more aggressive, takes a longer blood meal, takes a quicker blood meal. Maybe the virus has to um, figure out how to get to the salivary glands faster so it could be transmitted. Um, so yeah, all of these, all of the things that we do at kind of like the macro level can very much affect that little micro tiny level. And we definitely see those changes at the genetic level um, much faster than we do at the um, phenotypic or what we see level. Well, what about mosquito control? Say you, uh, you, you figure out a way to, um, you know, alter the DNA and all of these mosquitoes, some new work being, being done. And now, uh, what is it? They can only have, they can only breed males or something like that, which kind of drives this, uh, drives the population numbers of a, of a species or multiple species of mosquitoes way down, which is, it, it seems like, and as far as humans are concerned, the less mosquitoes around, the better for us. But then does that have, uh, does that have a cost within ecosystems as well? Um, so I, I get asked this question a lot and I have to say that, um, of the 5,200 mosquito species that are found around the world, you know, there's probably 60 of them in Tennessee and five of them are really bad. And so if we eliminated those five, I, I don't think that there will be a, um, a collapse to an ecosystem anywhere. Um, you know, things like, like bats and frogs and, and other creatures that do feed on mosquitoes. Um, I'll have plenty more to eat. Right. The There's something species. else for them. I yeah. mean, if, if there, there will be something, there'll be the other mosquitoes nearby. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, some of this, um, the science that's out there right now and the, the stuff that people are doing are very specific and they're targeting, you know, right now it's really only targeting two mosquito species. The one that transmits malaria and the one that transmits yellow fever, dengue and chikungunya and Zika and all these nasty viruses. Um, and so, yeah, so if it's, you know, two mosquitoes get wiped from the earth, um, you know, the downstream effects will be more um, human population, wildlife numbers probably increasing, things like that, that um, come with other problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, sure. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, I've, I've, yeah. I've. I'm because I'm I don't want to kill something just to kill it right Um, but if there is a um, because a lot of people think I mean we neuter pets and everything else if we can start neutering mosquitoes that sounds that sounds like a terrific solution to me and it 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 also doesn't I mean there there's kind of this idea of of like it not letting nature take its course or mm. something, yeah, whatever's no, natural. A, that's all like a weird philosophical argument that doesn't mean a whole lot at the end yeah, of the day anyway. But, I I, like. you know, and I think I always go back to that, this idea of what's a pest. Um, and I talk about it in my class and I talk about how the idea of a pest can change. Too, right. Right. So like a pest is something that's a nuisance or a bother and more. And so um, a pest that, is transmitting something in an area, in my opinion, should be controlled. But if it's just chilling and not doing anything wrong, just I, I have no problem with letting it be. And so a lot of um, the public health districts and mosquito abatement districts and other people who do the control wait to do um, sprays or anything like that until there's an actual um, transmission or problem happening. So what about, uh, what about tick prevention? What, what kinds of information do you try to get out there to the public? Yeah. So, um, when it comes to tick prevention, um, we have a lot to learn. 
And so what we're doing right now is transferring the ideas that we know from mosquito prevent, you know, mosquito bite prevention to tick prevention as well. So, you know, wearing repellent, wearing um, clothing that will make it easy to find the tick and remove it um, or something that will kill the tick. So like um, permanent and treated, you know, treated clothing, things like that. Um, but some of the work coming out of my lab um, fairly soon we're excited about is looking at um, habitat management. So how do we change that environment just enough so that, you know, the, the wildlife that has a bunch of ticks on it aren't running through um, that pasture going through this one forested area um, and also making those like data driven decisions where, you know, if there's humans in this area, that's where we need to do a, you know, a controlled burn or something like that versus another area where there's no risk at all, just leaving it be and letting, you know, like we said earlier, nature take its course. Um, so there's still a lot to learn, but most of it is personal protection along with preventing wildlife into what you would consider being a, um, a safe area or a tick-free area. Safer area. There's no such thing as a safe area. Yeah. If I'm going to get into hiking around here, maybe you cut all this yeah. hair off and just wear white, no, no, white no. spandex, maybe? Oh, no, you would die from heat exhaustion. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> heat, stress would, heat stress would ruin it. Oh. I, I keep on trying to find a reason to wear... Uh, the Tyvek suit? The, uh, yeah, so what, just, just a pure white yeah, so my, thing uh, around town. So my colleagues in, in the Northeast and in the Upper Midwest, they do go out when they do their tick collection um, in their straight up white suits. Now, yeah. I can't send my students out like that because of many reasons, one being heat stress. Um, the other is bullying? No, nobody seems to bully them because they have ticks. <laughs> nobody wants to like. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you don't mess with the tick person. You don't mess with the tick person. Typically, people are excited when we show up right. or concerned when we show up. Um, <laughs> but you, you do the smart things, right? You, you'll you'll yeah. put your hair up and you can put it in a little man bun or something like that and keep it up. Okay. You would tuck your shirt in and you would um, probably wear some really cool socks that are long, some like tube-like socks and tuck your pants in there. Um, if you were in an area where you know that there's ticks and or um, pathogens that they transmit. Um, and so that's some of the stuff that we're, we're trying to figure out is, you know, where are people encountering ticks? Can we describe that habitat so that if you were to go out, you can make that informed decision mm. and you don't have to do it all the time. Right. So it could be, you know, ticks are here now, but not there later on when you want to go. So you, could there be kind of some systems in place that are similar to um, like fire warnings? Where I absolutely hope that will happen one day. Yeah. yeah. I would love to see, you know, you're going out to an area and it's like, hey, you know, this is a, you know, like jellyfish are coming out, right? When you think about the ocean, there's a jellyfish warning. Lots of, lots of ticks are right. being reported right now. Um Later on, you know, hey, you know, just be aware. We haven't had a lot of ticks, but still just be aware. You should never completely let your guard down, but just being aware is important. Is there anything, like, is there an app or anything like that that's been developed yet? That There can... is. So I, I believe, um, I can't remember what institution developed it, but there is a tick app and you can look up and see like when and where it's occurring. Um, but, you know, it's, a lot of that information is, is crowdsourced. So it's, you know, people saying I've seen it and here's where it is. Um, what we're doing is we're partnering with the Forest Service. And so the Forest Service, they go out into the forest all the time. It's by the job. 
um, and they get ticks on them kind of as a um, as a hazard with their job. They send those ticks to us. We identify them, screen them for different pathogens. And so now we're um, really looking at developing these models to, you know, not just go by the public of what they're seeing, um, but also use data to map and um, create calendars of when they're going to be there. Um, and a lot of the, the tick app stuff is, I think, more kind of um, northern in focus. We, there's a lot to learn in the Southeast, I will say. Great. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so if, if there's, so say you're really able to, um, you know, get a lot of, uh, a lot more resources. Every listener is going to start where, where are they going to uh, donate if they, if they want to um, help fund, if they want to be a donor or something, where did, where, where would people go? So if they're interested in donating in the Megabytes program where we work with the teachers and do a lot of lacrosse research, um, they can go to megabytes.org, M-E-G-A-B-I-T-E-S-S.org, or the UT Foundation. We have um, places, I say we, they have it all figured out on like kind of how to narrow the money down to vector-borne diseases or even how to, um, if you want to think grander, you know, how to donate to the One Health um, Institute or initiative. Apologies. So, so, so say science uh, this is for me when science is at its best is when it can solve all these problems is when it can be on the preventative side. And, and you said there's, there's, there's things within, um, you know, habitat that can be, that can be changed that the average person is just never even going to be privy to they, they're, they're never even going to be aware of mm -hmm. the things that have been managed within say the habitat to reduce mosquito or, or tick populations yeah. or something they don't even need to think about it or or know the counterfactuals that that could have happened to you know a parallel universe where where no one does yeah, anything about tethers, anything yeah. and um <laughs> yeah you get, you get people into the uh, people aren't ever going to have to experience the horrifying a multiverse where uh, no one cares about science. Can you imagine a culture no. where people don't care about no, I science? I don't want to think about that culture. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, but what what happens when science when science is at its best and it manages all these problems, and then people people don't have to confront or see the problems because of all of this preventative maintenance? It's it's like yeah. you go. If you if you if you get your car maintenanced regularly and you're regularly getting the oil changes and the recommended spark plugs and everything else and there's just never you go 200,000 miles with your car and there was never a problem you go well I just wasted all that money on all of those oil changes and yeah. and fixing yeah, this Yeah, it doesn't sound like a horrible problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I I do think that preventative science um Oh man, I, I wish we had more of it. I wish we had. Me too. It's, you know, we, the goal is to prevent problems and to not react to problems. Right. And oftentimes I feel like I show up to a site too reacting late. to a problem. Yeah. Um, so we, we right. are trying to change it. Um, and I do think people are, you know, I'm an optimist. So I do think people are becoming more aware um, and, and informed, self informed mostly, um, of what's happening. I don't really know where I'm going with this, except I don't want to think about that world where people don't care about science and I'm doing my best and my small part, you know, here in East Tennessee, going into middle school and high school classrooms, going to a farm, going to livestock auctions, 
going to different places and talking about the work that I do, because if I don't, what's the point? Right. If I can't if I can't share the work that I do, what's the point? And I really look at this as taxpayer dollars and, you know, my yeah, this is them needing to learn the importance of it. Fantastic. Yeah. So one more time, if people want to learn more about what you do, where would you like to direct them? I have no idea. Well, you're uh, <laughs> yeah, so, the, so you the various about, organizations that yeah, you work. So, um, so yeah, so to learn more about lacrosse virus and the work that we do um, in middle school and high school classrooms, and I shouldn't say just, um, we work with them. They're, they're a part of the team. Um, you can go to megabytes.org, M-E-G-A-B-I-T-E-S-S, there's two dot org um or even just the university of tennessee one health initiative um there's a lot of information there that you know i do and some of my colleagues do that is you know preventative you know, preventative problems you know the goal is you know not to just react to them but to prevent those bad things from happening in the first place wonderful and if you want to uh support one there's going to be links within the description and everything but if you also want to support um, what I do, which is trying to get the uh, the word out about science as much as possible. Patreon.com slash Shane, M-A-U-S-S. And thank you so much, Becky, for joining me. This thank has been you. terrific. Thank you for having me. And again, science communication is extremely important. If we can't talk about it, what's the point? <laughs> Absolutely. I am in agreement. So thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I hope you get a chance to... Uh, take some of these conversations and spread them as well make them viral make them make <laughs> virus information viral thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you next week <laughs> <laughs>